is in absolute chaos. You've only got to open the paper today and you will read about a hostile takeover, the overthrowing of a CEO, and a share raid. The largest companies in the world are literally plundering the earth and crossing any moral boundary for their own self-gain. report depicted it as a bruising workplace. So from former employees. Others falling asleep as they work. And just because it's become the normal way of doing business, doesn't mean it's right. It is time for the Christians to stand up and start doing business righteously. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the just, not for the Christian. It is time that we act justly to position ourselves in such a way that our fellow man benefits. In the parable of the Minas, we read a story of a master who's going away to a faraway land, and before he leaves, he gathers 10 servants and gives each of them a mina. One person comes back and says, I turned my one mina into 10. One says, I turned the one mina into five. And one says, I turned my one mina into one. You and I have an obligation to take the mina we've been given, to go and do business in a way that glorifies God and points people back to Him. And for Kingdom Business Summit 2024, it's time. It's time that we scaled our businesses. It's time that we grew as leaders. It's time that we act justly. It's time that we multiply our impact. And ultimately, it's time to take dominion. At Kingdom Business Summit 24, we are taking ground. This is gonna be the most practical summit we've ever put on. It's gonna be the deepest spiritual training where we plumb the depths of scripture and make that practical for the everyday use. But we're also gonna be looking at strategy. What does it look like to scale a business in 2024? What are the tools you need around sales, around marketing, around leadership? And not to mention the most phenomenal lineup of speakers. So we have this entire interchange to it's settled. Whatever God says, I embrace it as the best because he's my maker and he knows what is right for me. There will be hundreds of kingdom entrepreneurs that are there to learn together, worship together, and network together. So I invite you to join me for Kingdom Business Summit 2024, where you will learn the practical tools that you can apply to take dominion. Well, g'day Empire Builders. It is so good to be back with you for Bible for Business Broadcast 11. Actually, 11, 10, 10, 10, it's 10, it's not 11. 11 will be some point in the future, probably tomorrow. Uh, Dub Beth, thanks for watching. Clarissa, thanks for joining me. If you're watching, do me a favor. Let me know where you are watching from. That would be cool for me if you did that. Let me know where. You know, the whole purpose and the premise of this show, it's a bit different to the normal stuff, you know, for the last seven or eight years, I've put out a lot of content that's very business-based, you know, in terms of like marketing and sales and recruitment and HR and interviewed some amazing kingdom entrepreneurs around the world and pulled their story. And all of that's going to come back. But for this particular show, I really wanted to just spend time in the scriptures. So literally, you know, plumb the depths of the scriptures and then bring them out in a marketplace way so that, so that you can operate your business in a more godly way, right? Um, and if you've covered off on some of the last BBBs that I've run, then 
then you'll know that there is a blessing that happens when you choose to live righteously. And the truth be told, there's a blessing you miss out on if you don't live that way. So really, this is about plumbing the depths of scripture um, and scaling up your business, nurturing your family and deepening your walk with the Lord. That's the whole motivation here. So it would mean the world to me, by the way, if you shared this show. So if you know if you catch it on my Facebook profile, my personal one, then just share it out. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, then grab the share link, put it on social for me. Um, you know, if you're on LinkedIn, share it, like it, comment, all those kind of things. If you're listening to this on uh, our podcasting apps, then please, you know, give us a like, give us a five-star review, give us all the things you can do. Help me get this message out to more people. That's the oxygen that makes me want to show up here every single day. All right. Today we're talking about how to handle a crisis, how to handle a crisis. If you've been in business more than five minutes, you know that they are inevitable, but there's a certain way to conduct ourselves and there's a certain way not to. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to pull five leadership lessons from Acts 27. Five leadership lessons from Acts 27. And uh, it's, it, man, this could be a gripping novel in and of its own. Uh, you know, it, even if it was just like some, you know, dodgy Grisham book or whatever, like it would be a very, very compelling story to read. Um, Beauty for us is it was documented in our scriptures. So, um, Acts 27 is when the Apostle Paul set sail for Rome. So I'm going to read a lot of scripture. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, settle in. Um, then I'm going to pull out some things that I think are really cool from the story. Uh, and then I'm going to run through the five leadership lessons and where did I find them. All right. So strap in. It's going to literally change your life these next kind of 20 minutes, maybe 30. All right. So Acts 27 goes like this. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to the centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from uh, Adramitium, about to set sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. So um, obviously shipping was, was massive at this time, but they, they didn't want to go to the open seas they would basically stick along the shore, right? And just, and ride up from port to port to port to port to port and come back. And they would always stick to the mainland. That was obviously the safest way. They, they, would, they would go the extra distance if it meant doing that rather than the shortest avenue of crossing the open seas. So they boarded a ship about to sail for the ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So, so catch this. Um, I just want to pick up on a few things. It was decided that we would set sail for Italy. Um, and then it says, uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica was with us. So who is we and who is us, right? The story is written about the apostle Paul, right? So we know that the, uh, like as part of the cohort here, we've got Paul, we've got Julius, um, we've got Aristarchus, the Macedonian, and we've got Luke, right? Because Luke wrote the book of Acts. Okay. That's why Luke is writing us and we, um, because Luke documented the book of Acts. <clears throat> so the next day we landed in Sidon 
and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Now, why would Julius show kindness to Paul? Well, um, there are other places where it says, uh, basically, God showed favor to, to the person, um, or God caused the person to show favor to them. But in this particular case, it doesn't say that. So just think about who's on this boat. Prisoners, right? So Paul actually is yet to be sentenced. So he's been treated like a criminal, but he's not a criminal. And so, you know, there would have been some pretty rough men uh, that were on this boat, like heavy criminals, convicted, about to go to Rome, you know, to basically face, you know, death in 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 the octagon, right? You know, the, to be fed to the beasts for entertainment. That's what most of these guys were. And Paul's with them, uh, but he's not convicted yet. So so I think just because of that, like this guy would have been like, he's not the bad guy here. Let's 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 show him some uh, show him some grace. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee side of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. Right, so they basically just basically arrived at the top of the Horn, right across you know up the up the med and and so now they find themselves in Lycia which is a bit of a hub there the centurion found an alexandrian ship sailing for italy and put us on board so this ship's very very different this is actually a cargo ship it's a commodity ship like grain barley wheat and a whole bunch of prisoners all right 276 actually uh on this boat <clears throat> so but but a very different design, okay, and uh, and not a great boat actually for heading into rough seas. A really good boat for moving grain, um, but not a very good boat for heading out into open seas. So we'll see what happens. Um, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee side of Crete opposite Salmon. So they've, they've had to change their course because it's just literally not working in this boat. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhavens near the town of Lycia. Now, Fairhavens sounds beautiful. That's like, that would be like the, the ultimate name for like a retirement village now. Where do you live? I live in Fairhavens. That's right. But <clears throat> Fairhavens was one of the most dangerous ports uh, you know, in the whole of the med. <clears throat> so, so, so they, I guess they did a lot of, uh, propaganda too. The government called it something that it isn't to just make it a little bit more palatable. sounds a bit like superannuation. <clears throat> Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement. Now, what does that mean? That tells us that this is about October um, and, and it tells us that they have been on a very long fast, right? That's typically what you do on the day of atonement, right? So they've had a very extensive fast, but that doesn't even like the fast is what you do on day of atonement, not because you sail. All right. But basically what this means is October heading into the, you know, the Christmas break for us, like that period of time is treacherous for the seas, right? It's known that it's actually a horrible time to be out there. Uh, but that's where they find themselves, right? That's why it's given us that marker of Day of Atonement, right? They've done a fast, but that's not the big issue. The big issue is this is not a great time to be out in the seas, you know, on this time of year. Um, so 
So Paul warned them, right? So Paul, Paul gets up and says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. So Paul was always compelled by people's welfare. Not only the 276 people on board and their life, but even the owner of the ship. He's like, guys, if we keep going, you're going to lose cargo. So you're going to lose your income. You're going to lose your ship, right? So you're going to lose your, you know, your business. This is a really bad idea. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot of the boat and the owner of the ship. Now, I can kind of understand why. It's like, okay, preacher man, like, so we're, we're sailors. We do this for a living. You're a half-convicted criminal that can't shut up. right? Remember, this has all happened because Paul preached when he shouldn't have done and caused a riot, so they had to get rid of him. It's like rumor has spread. It's like, yeah, okay, Paul, you stick to causing division and we'll stick to shipping, right? You can just imagine that the the way they would have viewed Paul. It's like, okay, mate, that, that that's enough from you. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So it didn't have the winds coming from um, the, you know, the dangerous sides. All right, so this is where it starts to get exciting. <clears throat> when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeastern swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so they couldn't go where they wanted to go. So we gave way, we gave way to it, and, and we were driven along. As we passed to the lee side of a small island called Cowder, we hardly able to make make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. So they put a lifeboat out, couldn't really get it work because the sea's too rough, so they hauled it back up. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. So they've dropped ropes down one side, you know, with the current, dropped them underneath, pulled them back up, and they're tying the boat together because it's obviously made of wood, right? Not like iron, like the, the Titanic, right? So... Um, so they're literally trying to basically hold this thing together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they dropped an anchor so that it kind of goes a whole lot slower, of course. We took such a violent battering, we, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. It's like, you know, this, like, let, let, we're more worried about the ship than we are the income, so let's get rid of the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So now they're panicking, right? This has been going on for a little while. Uh, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, right? That So, so now it's really bad, right? They can't see the sun because of how bad the storm is, and they can't see the stars because the storm didn't stop. It continued raging. We finally gave up all hope of being saved. They don't obviously mean like their soul. They mean the boat being able to get them to shore. <clears throat> After they had gone a long time without food. So now they're on another fast. This is not the day of atonement fast, right? Now they've, they've, this is a different reason. Because remember, a lot of those prisoners wouldn't have cared for a day of atonement fast. 
After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you ha- you should have taken, <laughs> this is the ultimate like told you so, right? This is like the ultimate told you so moment. Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. <clears throat> um, now, you've got to remember that if you go back through the book of Acts, back to sort of 15, 16, 17, it was already made very clear to Paul by the two women that journey with him and brought a message to say, you're meant to stand trial before Caesar. That the gospel needs to go to the center of Rome and it's going to bring down the Roman Empire. And if you remember, Paul stood in front of King Agrippa and King Felix and 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 could have said, I'm a Roman citizen and 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 took the beatings that he didn't have to take, didn't put his hand up, didn't complain. They just wiped their hands of him and passed him on to the next level of government because they didn't know what to do with him because he's getting falsely accused and people knew it, but he's also causing a riot and he's causing a, you know chaos. So they, they want to get rid of him. So rather than prosecute him, they just he, he just like, well, just send me on to the next one, right? Because he knew that as he goes through all of these layers of government, ultimately he'll stand before Caesar. And ultimately, he has to stand before Caesar because that's where the gospel is going to pierce the heart of the stronghold and bring the whole thing down, which we know from history happens, right, after his life. So that's why, that's why, you know, we read here that he's okay delivering this message, right? He's like, keep up your courage. And and God, what I love so much is God showing up, the angel showing up in the middle of the night to say that to him when he already knew that that's what he had to do is so comforting, right? You can imagine, right? Because he's already been, you know, he's been told you're going to go to the center of, of Caesar. You're going to go to Caesar, the center of Rome. But as it starts to get really intense, basically an angel turns up and says, it's all good. You're, you're going to be fine. So that's just the heart of God right there, that on the journey, he will back up and confirm the things he's called you to. That's not even one of our leadership lessons, but it should be. But uh, but But you could write that one down. Nevertheless, we must run aground. All right, let's keep reading. On the 14th night, so they've been going a little while. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings, right, which is when they pass a very long pole and then they wait till they hit the ground and then they can see the, the level and found that the waters were 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. So they're getting closer to the shore. Fearing they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the back of the boat and prayed for daylight. So they wanted to slow down. They didn't want to crash against rocks during the night. They wanted to crash against them during the day. So they dropped the anchors so that they would crash slower. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let, so catch this, in an attempt to set, to, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down in the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So the sailors right? So the, you know, the captain and his crew, not the 276 criminals, but the the crew, they, they literally went stuff this. We're going to pretend we're dropping anchors. We're going to drop a lifeboat, get in it. And and we're going to get ourselves off to safety because this boat is cactus. The minute it finds some rocks, right? 
So they were pretending they were going to lower some anchors down, but they were getting a lifeboat. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldier cut the ropes and let the lifeboat drift away. So it's like, you've got to stay with the boat to be part of the promise that he gave me in the dream last night. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. So he's always motivated by their welfare, right? And not phased. He's it's just such a beautiful character of Paul, right? And the reason why he's not phased is because he knows what's coming. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. So this is not a forced fast. This is a chosen fast because of how treacherous this journey is, right? He's like, you haven't been eating much because of how worrying this is. You need to eat. Now, I urge you to take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they had not rec- they, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach <clears throat> where they decided to run the ship aground if they could, cutting loose the anchors so they could move faster. They left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck first and would not be moved. Then the stern to the front struck first. And then the the rear was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Now catch this. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. Right? So the favor that is on Paul's life extends to the 276. Not only did he not get killed, the 276 didn't either. Right? He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and get to land. The rest were to go there on planks, on or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everybody reached land safely. That's a lot of scripture, but it's a beautiful book and we should spend more time in it. Um, Here's a thing to remember, right? One of the reasons why Paul's not worried is because this is Paul's last missionary journey, actually. And, uh, and he, he kind of lets us know a little bit about what his life's been like. If I click, flick over to, if I go to second Corinthians eleven twenty five, he says this three times I was shipwrecked. This is not his first rodeo of being shipwrecked. That's why he had the confidence to kind of stand up and say, uh, it's the bad time of year for us to be going across there because like I've done this before, <laughs> like, like I've actually, uh, uh, like, like, like I know how this plays out. I know you think I'm a little preacher man, but, but I've like, this is not my first rodeo. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. Another translation kind of says that he spent, um, night and day in the deep sea. So not part of the boat clinging onto, you know, a, a bit of wood, right. For an entire night and day. See, some, some of us think that we've had a rough ride, but we really have not when you consider what Paul had to go through. All right. <clears throat> so, so where, what do we draw into from here? Let's get to these five 
these five leadership lessons from Paul because because there's an awful lot in there that I want to go through, but I want to kind of do it succinctly, right? And and the truth of the matter is, you will face a crisis. You, if you stay in business long enough, you will probably face t- twenty or thirty. I hesitated because I'm like, I don't want you to get to twenty and think you've made it, right? Like, like you know, I mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't even say that I have faced a crisis. I, but there have been things that have been really challenging. Like, I started a business coaching practice nine months before the global financial crisis. So nine months into starting that business and everyone's telling me my business is going to go nowhere. Now, I prospered every single month through the global financial crisis and was able to buy real estate at like 75 to 80 cents in the dollar. So, but I'm saying like at the time when everybody's telling you like it's really bad, it's going to go bad, you know, you just got to hold on. And, you know, and, and obviously COVID, right? COVID was really interesting because we were halfway through a national tour of five cities when it broke out and we got to the, we got to event three or five and got shut down over the two days. Every time I hopped off stage for a break, the team would brief me on the latest round of changes and it was the two square meter rule and then four square meter rule. So, you know, big, big God was amazing. I still remember they, the venue told us you're only, you're now only allowed 64 people in this conference center. You know, we had sold 350 tickets or something you can only have 64 people here it's like what do i how do i I work that out i was like and this was like the morning of so people would have been traveling in we had sent an email out to say listen we're going to live stream this one so if you prefer to be in the safety of your own home or whatever we're going to live stream it here's the link it's free you can just you can just catch the live stream for the whole two days and so literally 64 people turn up to the venue to to the number to the seat 64 people show up and they get a seat each and nobody else shows up uh, like unhappy, like only the Lord can put this stuff together. But I still remember like flying home from that trip to Melbourne, having to cancel Adelaide and Perth. And, you know, for the next three weeks, I was getting 200 phone calls a day from clients and people I had no idea who they were. Like what is like literally panicking, panicking, crying, I couldn't ring everybody back. There were so many voicemails. I was like, I, I don't even know what to do here. And I'm, I'm poor. I put content out day and night to try and appease people. And, but it was, it was a real, it was a real crisis, you know, and, and I've got my own business to manage and there's 200 people a day calling me about theirs, right? What does it all mean? When's the government money? What is a stimulus? How can they do this? What does it mean? Like, so I'm, you know, and, and I, I remember the, the first thing I was like, okay, I'm going to put a, this is one of my most proudest achievements to date, right? I, I was like, we need a phone line for business people, for kingdom entrepreneurs to be able to call to get prayer support during this like heavy time. Because, you know, people were telling me, this is my, my last chance. If this ruins me, I'm going to take my life. Like people were very, very vulnerable. I was like, I've got to put this together. So I managed to pull together a brand new phone number and um, I did a deal with um, – uh, the Christian counselors of Australia to man a phone for me 24 seven with staff, like on a, on a rotation. And we put out the phone number and people called it. And I know people called many, many times to get help during that time. So what I'm saying is it's a crisis, right? And, 
you know, and then obviously, you know, they're talking about an economic downturn again now, which doesn't bother me. I hope there is one. But I'm saying, like, there's always crisis, right? And and you've got your own version of whatever. You might have those ones. You might have, you know, the entire business got shut down. You, I know, I know people that have had like seventy to eighty percent of their staff walk out in a week. Like, like they're they're real crises that you have to manage, right? So let's look at how Paul handled his and how we can learn from there. All right, lesson number one. Lesson number one: In every crisis, step up and take charge. Step up and take charge. Don't wait for somebody else to step up. Don't wait for somebody else to take charge. Don't find yourself in the bottom of a pit or at the bottom of a bottle sulking away about what you've lost. You've got to find it in you to be to step up and take charge. That doesn't mean that you have the highest authority, right? That doesn't mean you're the highest rank on the ship. It means that you're the spiritual authority in the environment because you're a redeemed believer and you have to step up and you have to take charge. Now, as the owner of a business, you're going to have to step up and take charge at times when you don't want to, when your identity is being rocked, right? When you feel like you're coming like a tax against you, right? When, when you're questioning everything you've ever learned, right? When all of that is happening, as hard as it is, that is the time to step up. And you are better off to step up and be average right? Then not step up and do nothing, okay? Because nobody knows what excellent is in a crisis, right? What we do know is we follow the people that step up. Now, here's what's interesting. I forget what it's called. It's, uh, you know, some law or some, some syndrome, right? Where the more people that are watching an issue, the less likely anybody stands up, right? So if there's only two people that face an issue, like somebody, somebody steps up immediately because it's like, there's only two and it's not you and it's me. Right. But, but if there's like 50 people involved, like every time you add to the number of people involved in the crisis, the likelihood of somebody stepping up is dramatically decreased. Right. So that's great. Cause that's how the world operates, but we're not called to be of this world. We're called out to be separated, to be called apart. And so you and I have an obligation during a crisis, large or small as the spiritual authority in that place to step up and take charge. You have to step up and take charge. Okay. It's not going to be comfortable. You're not necessarily going to be liked, but it is what you are trained for. Now, of course, there are other scriptures that say, don't worry about what you're going to say and what the words are. Like you have to worry about any of that. You just have to stand up in the authority you've been given, going in the boldness, right? That you're allowed to go as a believer and just start to speak and start to take control and take charge. Now that, you know, that may not be ordering everybody around, Okay, that could be looking after the welfare of the people, right? Like Paul did, but but it is one thing that is missing in modern leadership is the obligation in a crisis to step up and take charge. You have been given dominion every place the sole of your foot goes. You've got to step into that. You've got to learn to rule and reign, which is what taking dominion is, in those times that are crisis. And do not wait for somebody else to do it who doesn't have a great relationship with the Lord because they will take the whole situation and they'll throw it to the dogs. It is for you and I in a crisis to be aware of what's inside of us, who's inside of us. And out of that, we don't have to worry about whether we're a perfect leader or a flawed leader. We just have to choose to be the people that stand at the forefront with our broad shoulders and take charge. Okay. And in that, you will find that you get a better outcome. There'll be more favor on the situation with you taking charge than some random who has no idea how to hear the voice of God. All right. 
That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is God will get you to your destiny. God will get you to your destiny as long as you never quit. As long as you never quit. So if you take, um, I think if you take, if you take the destiny God's given you, whether you call it destiny, whether you call it the dream, whether you call it the assignment, group all of those together. God's given you some dream to build a business for some outcome, right? And by the way, if you don't have one of those, it's because you're not spending enough time with the Lord, okay? Go and get a dream. Go and get a destiny. Go and get an assignment from the Lord where he says, you who are called before the foundation of the earth to do mighty works, works that were predestined before you were born, you go and figure out what they are. And they will always be contributing to the kingdom of God before they're ever contributing to the kingdom of self. Go and find good work, the the thing that the Lord's got you to do. And then you crystallize what that is in your mind's eye, and that's what you become enamored with, right? So once you've got that vision, and you may not get all of it at the start, but the Lord will give you a vision, right? Once you've got that, that's what you start hanging on to. Now, the thing is, there's only really one force that can stop you achieving your destiny. Only one. And that's quitting. Failure is not going to stop you. You can dust yourself off and get up and go again. You can dust yourself off 36 times and get up and go again. That's not going to stop you. It's not going to stop God, right? But you quitting and getting all upset and miserable and woe is me and, you know, the flesh is too strong and I just want to go back to what's easy, right? I'm talking, you know, I'm talking about, I don't know, maybe like 75% of Christians who like the minute it gets tough, go back to what's comfortable, right? We, we have to understand that he will get us to the destiny if we never quit. Now, the reason why I say that is not some hocus pocus, like feel good, you know, abdicating the responsibility for God. No, if we realize <clears throat> that God will get us to our destiny if we never quit, then we can be relaxed enough in the moment to not be upset by the crisis because the crisis will not be defining, right? If we realize that it's also God's job description to get us to the destination, as long as we never quit. So we just bring our best and he does the rest, cliche as that is. He'll get us there as long as we never quit and turn backwards. That is not so that you can be miserable all the way through it. That is so that you can build the confidence that says, okay, this is a crisis, but he hasn't called me to end here. He's called me to end here. So we're going to be okay. It's going to suck and it's horrible and there'll be tears and upset and I might, you know, have to go backwards for a minute, but I'm not going to quit. And if I don't quit, right, and I just put one foot in front of the other, there'll be good times and there'll be crisis, but I will get to the destination. The concept of, you know, you, you can't fail at this, you can only quit, should give you the confidence during a crisis to go, He didn't bring me this far to bring me this far, right? So then you can be like, well, it doesn't really matter how bad this gets because I'm just going to do my bit and the Lord's going to make sure and I'm never going to quit. And so there has to be another way to fulfill the assignment if it doesn't look like this way is going to be the answer right now. That's the confidence that you get from just deciding that you will get to your destiny 
And outside of that confidence, when you don't have that surety, and by the way, that's not on God, that's on you. That's from reading all these scriptures of people that just stuck at it and achieved something great despite the mayhem on the way. It's all in there. I've got it in my life. You've probably got it in yours. But we second guess it whether he can do it again in our life when the next crisis arrives. And so what most people do is they quit, they play small, they go back, they take the easy road. That's a recipe for disaster. You'll never achieve anything great. What we're talking about here is that confidence that goes, well, this is a crisis, um, but I'm not going to quit. And so even if I have to go to absolute zero, I'm not going to quit. I mean, I've told you guys many times, if all of my team left today and said, stuff you, I'm out, I'll be back here tomorrow. Sure, it'll be difficult because I don't know how to turn the computer on. I don't know how to run a live stream, but I'll do some YouTubing. I'll figure it out, right? I'll be back here tomorrow. I'll just do it on my phone or something. I know how to do that. Like, like... Like I've just made that decision that I ain't going to quit. So now when life sucks, it's just one chapter in a big book. And when you get that level of confidence, the crisis doesn't derail you, which I think is wonderful. So God will get to your destiny as long as you don't quit. So just be relaxed. The third lesson, don't expect everyone to value your advice. Don't expect everyone to value your advice until they do. Don't expect everybody to value your advice until they do, right? So Paul steps up. This is a Paul says, this is a bad idea, guys. Treacherous weather, bad time of year, storm coming. It's going to be dangerous. No, no, no. We know what we're doing, little fella. We're going to go, all right? Now, if we go to, if we, I think if we cut back in at 31, 31, 27, 31. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers. So, so remember, he said to them, we shouldn't do this. They said, sit down. They did it their own way and got absolutely battered, right? So now they're all at the end of their rope. Then Paul says to the centurion, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes and held the lifeboat and let it drift away. So finally, they've gone, this poor guy knows what he's talking about. Because what he said has come to pass and there's more hope in his promise than there is in this little boat here. So we're going to go with what he says. Listen, as the leader, when you decide to step up and take charge, you have to expect that not everybody is going to agree with what you say and it's totally okay. Listen, we're not trying to run unanimous decision-making. If you want to run unanimous decision-making, you will go nowhere as a leader. Sure, democracy is a pretty good idea, like majority vote will, will get you some friends, but there's going to be a time when you don't even have a majority vote. As the leader, you are called, listen, leadership sucks. You are going to be called to make decisions that let a lot of people down and hurt a lot of people. And then it's about how you handle it, right? Do you look after their welfare after you've let them down? That's that's the kingdom. But, but you're like, the reason why we have such social decay today in our society is because we do not have government leaders who are prepared to make a call. We have government leaders that are pandering to votes, right? That's how you get in, you know, in a, in a, you know, like in a political system that's based on popularity, right? You know, like, like you read about Abraham Lincoln and like those people that had to make actual decisions, you know, that were not popular, right? You know, think about Winston Churchill. He made decisions that were not popular, but that's, that's the hallmark of a leader, even more so for a Christian leader. So you cannot expect everyone to go with what you say. But when you stick to your conviction and you see God move, they will come round. Maybe not everybody, but they will come round, right? Do not expect everyone to value your advice until they do. But it could be a long time between when you say it and when, you know, when they actually start to 
validate what you said. And your job is not to waver in the meantime. You got to be ruled by conviction and go where you're going. And do not be put off by the naysayers. Do not be upset by the people. Now, you've got to remember, when Paul steps up and says, we shouldn't do this, and they say we're doing it anyway, he's like, okay, okay. I've been called to go to Rome. So it looks like we're going to have a boat that is absolutely destroyed, right? Like, like the storm's not going to stop me getting to Rome. The crisis won't stop me doing the assignment. I'm just trying to say that you're going to destroy your boat, the cargo, and all the people on board if you give this a crack. But you want to do the boat thing? You want to go now? All right. Let's let's not let's not winter in a safe harbor. Let's go and and uh, and 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 see what happens, right? Because he was secured, right? So you could imagine the bickering. Oh, well, that idiot thinks that we should do this. You know, like, well, they came around. They came around in the end, right? Because he stood up as a leader, said what needed to be said, right? Had the wisdom. Had the the only one with wisdom, right? Based on what we read. And, uh, and so that's where we find ourselves. Do not expect everybody to value your advice until they do. Leadership lesson number four, casting vision is a necessity for leaders. Casting vision is a necessity for leaders. You know, um, when he stands up and says, Not one of you will lose a hair on your head. So now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair on your head. It's like, what a way to cast vision to this group of people, right? I mean, he actually casts vision, you know, a a, a fair way through this. Like he says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo. Um, And then Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice to not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared them. Now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. So three times we find Paul stepping up in front of the group and casting vision. One was the vision we should not go. But when they decided to go, two more times he stands up and laces it with hope. Hey, we're going to be, the boat's going to be destroyed, but you are not. So be of good courage. Let's get this thing done. Right in in you know in a time of crisis, you as a leader, it is so important that because most leaders want to retreat in crisis, and you need to find a way to interface with the people that matter around you more frequently in a crisis. You actually need to find a way to cast vision consistently. It's not about having a phrase that you just put on repeat every time you get your staff together. It's about finding different ways to cast the vision. Right. You know, it could be, hey, listen, the GFC is coming. It's going to be a rough time, but I've been putting money aside and I've got a buffer and I'm going to manage you guys through this. There will be no layoffs due to the GFC. You know, there might be layoffs because your performance sucks, but there'll be no layoffs because of the GFC during this period of time. And I want you to have that surety. Now, let's lean in. Let's fight for this business every single hour. Let's hit our KPIs. Right. And another time could be like, hey, guys, we've had a good month despite what's going on. Let's go and get some, you know, Tacos in for the team and have some nice like like just constantly holding a vision that says these times won't last because what's coming is going to be great right you've got to find a way to cast vision consistently with your team especially in a crisis and you want to do it more frequently and you want to find different formats you might do it as a group you might do it one on one you might actually have dedicated one on ones with your team but you've got to find a way to cast vision right? Consistently and more so in a crisis because without it, 
without it, you've got this gossip, you've got this, you know, division that's natural, right? And what vision does is it pulls everybody on the same page. It gets them rowing in one direction and it gets them focused on a collective outcome. All right. And when you do that, when you do that, you will see discretionary effort go up. You will see, you know, effort go in. And then of course, you're going to get through the crisis because you've got a whole team that's focused on what's beyond the crisis, not the crisis itself. All right, but you, but it is on at a time when you just want to run away and make it all easy, and and that you've got to step up and you've got to interface with with vision much more than you are comfortable with. You cannot over visionary in a crisis. All right, the fifth lesson is you cannot let their panic become your panic. You cannot let their panic become your panic in a crisis. And and this is this is you know, easy to do when the kingdom of God and the scriptures are inside of you, you know, because you've heard me say before, like King, God says, my kingdom is not of this world. So why would you worry about the patterns of this world? Do not conform to the patterns of this world, right? So so we've got all these scriptures. I, he makes it rain on the just and the unjust, prosper in season, out of season. Psalm 13.1 says your, your leaf will never wither in any season, right? Like, so when you understand those things, you, you know that a crisis is not a crisis, right? So, so when everybody else is panicking around you, but you've got the things of the kingdom inside of you, it's very easy not to panic. But when you don't have the things of the kingdom inside of you, their panic will become your panic. You will start to listen to the news, right? You know, CNN, Bloomberg from America, and then it'll come over here to the ABC and, you know, and, and all the rubbish that they're going to push down, right? You know, I mean, we don't have any great you know, mainstream media in Australia anymore um, because they have to sell based off salacious stories. That's the only way they can sell their rubbish news, right? You know, and, and of course, you know, that's why they have to push rubbish, climate change, man-made climate change and all that sort of stuff because they're the only people that are going to be interested in being part of these news outlets anymore. By the way, if they weren't interested, they would just put news articles out that were the other way, but those people have lost interest. So now they have to sell to these people because they're the only ones paying any attention because they're scared, right? You know, on the left side of politics, you've got this scared, angry mob, right? And they're the only one. They love news because it fulfills itself. So, you know, I say all of that to say like, the minute you, <laughs> the minute you start consuming mainstream media news, you've already lost because their panic will become your panic, right? It's happening right now. In fact, yesterday's Bible for Business broadcast um, was a lot of stuff around, you know, the economy and, and what's going to happen and and the promises of God versus you know what the world has to say. It's like uh, uh, when you have just purposed in your heart that you are called out and and separated and you're blessed because you're part of a lineage, right? You know, you, you get to be blessed today because of the blessing of Abraham, right? It just passes down. It doesn't stop just because there's a New Testament. In fact, it intensifies because there's a New Testament. <clears throat> when you when that's inside of you, you look around the world and you're like, why, why are you panicking? Even in the natural, even in the natural, if our economy falls over, I'm going to go shopping tomorrow and buy real estate for less than I would have done if it didn't fall over. So I'm going to win if it goes up and I'm going to win if it goes down. That's just in the natural, right? Because I've learned how to make those decisions. But even spiritually, the GFC, I made a decision on in June 2008, 
that in spite of all the news, I will take money from my business and put it into an investment account to buy real estate. And I have done that every single month from June 2008 to today. It's more than monthly. I reckon I put money from my business into my investing account every two to three days. Right, just constantly with the discipline, just funneling over so that it can build an asset base. <clears throat> I'm not worried about their panic. I'm not worried about their panic, but it's the question I get, what, what, what do you think is going to happen? It's like, what I think is going to happen is your business will be fine and you can, you know, like, none of you guys that are watching this, your business is not serving 70% of your community or the 70% of the addressable market. Even if you're 50, which none of you guys are, there's another 50% you could go for. Some of you are, you, you know, your your market share, if you like, is like 1% of the market. It's like, why are you worried about an economy when you could just go and get 2% of the market and be twice the size, right? Like it's already out there. You're like, you're, you're not, you're nowhere near maximum utilization for your, you know, market penetration. So stop worrying about this and just get on with it. Like, how about just starting three more marketing pillars? That's going to get you like an actual business, irrespective of what happens in America or happens in Australia, right? So that's the, that's the, just get on with business as usual, regardless. And when the panic starts and the panic, you know, I know some of you, some of you, the panic is coming from news and some of you it's not because you've cut them out, which is a smart move. <clears throat> in fact, I remember when the, the day that Bernstein's bank went under, Black Friday in America for the GFC. I remember I um I, I canceled all my meetings the next day. I just said, sorry, I can't do my calls with you, coaching calls. And I sat on the phone and ring every single one of my clients and said, promise me, do not watch the news and do not read the newspaper for the next six months. Promise me you won't do that. If you do, if you don't do that, you'll have a great time. If you if you start reading and watching, you're gonna have a really bad time. And they didn't. Because it's funny, if you go back to the GFC. It was all bad news, except on the Gold Coast, fuel dropped in price, food dropped in price, and everything else stayed the same because it was such a lag before it kicked in. So it's like, don't worry about any of that stuff because their panic is going to become your panic and you can't let that creep in, right? It's, it's, it just ruins the whole, the whole thing. So you have got to choose that everybody else around you can be panicking and you don't have to. And that is one of the hallmarks of a great leader. And it's not fake it till you make it. It's realized that you are not caught of this world. You're in it, but you're not of it, right? It is realizing that God can make ravens come and feed Elijah in the desert. He, 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 if our GDP drops, like God's not, God's not like, oh man, I, I didn't see that one coming and I don't know how I'm going to feed my children. It's like, I, he, listen, he's 75,000 million steps ahead. Like this, th when, when, when this level of confidence is inside of you, you are not worried about somebody else's panic, right? But so many people are taking advice from their friends, advice from the news, advice from their taxi driver, right? Oh, you should have got into Bitcoin where I told you this Bitcoin's going to tank too, right? Like, I'm not worried. I just know that my God's got me and I can stand on the majority of the promises. You know, majority of the promises are about my provision and my welfare. They are... Unfortunately, for some people who can't stand this concept, they are conditional. God, well, God's love is unconditional. His love is unconditional, but his promises are conditional, right? It's like they are basically applied to righteous living. So if you're not righteous living, then you can't really hang on to any promises. The amount of people that say, I've been, I've been hanging on to the promises of God. Yeah, but you're, 
yeah, but you're plundering your family and on the pokies, on the booze. Like you, you, you're not really living in a way that exemplifies, you know, the the government of God. So, so they are they are conditional, but you need to just be the person that is not panicked by them. So when your team are coming to you, going, "What does all this mean?" Where's hey, calm down. We're going to be fine because God's going to look after this business and He's going to look after you, and it's going to be a testimony to you at the end of this that God was able to shine a light on this business because we're all going to work incredibly hard. We're going to make sure that, you know, we're doing, I'm going to do righteous living. I can't speak for you, my team, but I would, I'm going to, I'm going to show God that I can be trustworthy. I've sown. It's time for a harvest. We're going to call it in and everybody's going to look after. And you and I, my unsaved team member, we're going to have a chat in three years when this thing's over. And I'm going to say, right, you remember this conversation, how you were worried and all your friends have lost their jobs and all the other businesses have gone down and this one's still standing. You can be sure that God shined his face on this business and he didn't just look after me. He wanted to look after you. So let's get on our knees right now and repent of the stuff in your life and reach out to the Lord God Almighty and get you a salvation that you didn't even know you wanted. Five leadership lessons on how to handle a crisis directly from the Apostle Paul. Just to recap, in every crisis, step up and take charge. Number two, uh, God will get you to your destiny. You just can't quit. Number three, don't expect everyone to value your advice until they do. Leadership lesson number four, you've got a cast vision. It is a necessity for leaders and more so in a crisis. Number five, don't let their panic be your panic. Well, that's it for Bible for Business broadcast number 10. This is the longest one we've done. Uh, either way, I'm certainly enjoying doing this. Please do me a favor. What was the one thing that jumped out to you during this broadcast? Put it in the comments, whether that's on YouTube, whether that's on LinkedIn, whether that's on Facebook, and please, please, please share the show. Love you guys. <laughs>